The book of Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. And we're going to um, read through the last section of this chapter. And as we come to the last uh, portion of this chapter, we have ended the conversation, the discussion between the Lord and, and Moses. And so Moses is um, a call of the Lord, but what we find at the end of this chapter, we have to ask ourselves, why, why is it there? What's, what's with the last part of this chapter? And there's a reason why we have those details. If God didn't want us to have it, He wouldn't have given it to us, but He has given us uh, some things to consider. And as I read through it, I will be honest with you, I thought, what is going on here? So let's look and see what um, we can find out here in Exodus chapter 4. Verse 18. And Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said unto him, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren which are in Egypt, and see whether there be yet, they, they be yet alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said unto Moses in Midian, Go, return into Egypt, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart, and he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refusest to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. If you have paragraph division, there is a new paragraph here. And it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband thou art. Because of the circumcision. And the Lord said unto Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him, and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that He had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. As we look at the remainder of this chapter, there's certainly a lot of different things going on. I think by the end of the chapter, we know that Moses ends up going to Egypt and 
doing the signs before the people, and the people believe, and the result of that is they worship the Lord. And we'll get there, but before we get there, we have two things going on. From verse 18 to verse 23, we have Moses going to his father-in-law, saying, hey, would you let me go? His father-in-law says, you can go in peace, but Moses is still not leaving until God tells him, go. And then finally, Moses begins to take his wife, and the Lord gives a message to Moses, whether it's on the way or whether he was about to leave, uh, to, um, to go to perform all that God has said, and that God would harden the heart of Pharaoh. And then God gives Moses, now Moses did not know that it would be the last plague, but God tells him that if Moses refuses, then God would kill the firstborn. And then in the midst of this, we have an instance about the circumcision. Whose circumcision? We're not really sure. We know it's one of the sons of Moses. He had two sons. But up to this point, we only know of one who's been born. We read that in chapter, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. We know by Exodus 18, Moses has two sons. Uh, and so, who is God trying to kill? Is He trying to kill Moses? Is He trying to kill one of the sons? I, we're not exactly sure here, but hopefully as we study, we get a little bit of clarity. And then finally, Moses ends up going. So, what is going on in this chapter? And I'll be honest with you, there was a little bit of struggle in studying this chapter and trying to think, why has God uh, put this for us here? And as I'm looking through this passage, I think there is two things. Before Moses ends up going, I think we see two things in the life of Moses. We see, first of all, delay. And the second thing I think we see is disobedience. And I would like to call those two things, and that's before Moses ends up going and meeting Aaron, and then going eventually to Egypt. But I want to preach this evening on the two enemies of God's will. The two enemies, or could say two enemies of God's will. They're not exclusively enemies of God's will, but I think in our text, as we think about the life of Moses, before he ends up in Egypt, God gives us insight into Moses and his life, his personal happenings before he gets to Egypt, and some things that we can learn from that. So let's uh, look at our text here and begin studying here. I've divided this, the remainder of this chapter into three parts. The first part from verse 18 to verse 23. I believe here we see the delay of Moses. Uh, then the second part, verse 24 through 26, we see the disobedience of Moses. And then in the third part, we're going to look at the discharge of Moses. I use the word discharge because when someone is discharged, let's say they're imprisoned, they're captivated, they're not released, that means that they have fulfilled what they need to fulfill in order to go and do what they can do. And so in this sense, it seems that Moses has to settle certain things in his life before he can go do the will of God. And he doesn't go into Egypt until those things are taken care of in his life. And so let's look at the first part, the delay of Moses. As we begin reading in verse 18, we know that the conversation between the Lord and Moses is over. And, and so we see here 
In verse 18, Then Moses went and returned to Jethro his father-in-law, and said unto him, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren which are in Egypt, and see whether they be yet alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now, as Moses here, we read the narrative, he goes back to Jethro, and notice here, when God said for Moses to go, Moses didn't go immediately. As a matter of fact, as we read in our text, the command from the Lord, up to this point three times, God says, I want you to go to Egypt and to bring the people out of Egyptian bondage. And Moses is going to go back to Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, I think here that this would be a good thing for Moses to do. Because after all, Moses was not keeping his own sheep. He was keeping the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And so it would be the right thing to do uh, for Moses to go and ask permission of his father-in-law, leave from his father-in-law. And by the way, his father-in-law here in this chapter, he grants Moses the opportunity to go in peace. But I'm interested in what Moses says in this chapter, uh, in this verse 18. He says, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren which are in Egypt, and see whether they be yet alive. Now, isn't that peculiar? Um, Moses doesn't say anything to Jethro about his encounter with the Lord. He doesn't say to Jethro that God has called him to bring the people out of Egyptian bondage. What Moses says is, I'm just going to check check to see if they're alive. Well, that's not really what God told Moses to do. God says, go to Egypt, bring the people out of Egyptian bondage. And so here, this was not the reason God was sending Moses to Egypt. It was not to check to see whether they were alive. They were alive. Uh, Moses was not to check on their welfare. He was to bring them from under the hand of Pharaoh. And so here we see that I think what we observe here in the life of Moses is some struggles with the flesh. Why do we have this record for us? This conversation between Moses and Jethro, because I think that we still find in Moses, remember, the last thing we read about Moses is that he's arguing with God, and finally he tells God, send somebody else. He, he, he tells the Lord, please, I, I'm not eloquent, I can't speak, uh, could you send somebody? And God even grants that wish, says, well, I'm going to send Aaron, he's going to meet you, I'm going to speak to him, and then uh, he's going to go with you, and he's going to be your mouthpiece. And yet we go back here, and Moses is talking to his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he says, he doesn't really divulge all the information that God has called him to do, And so I think what we're observing here is some struggles in the life of Moses to do the will of God. And I think what we observe here is is delay. We read then in verse 19, even after notice his father-in-law says, Go in peace, I require nothing of you, you don't have to do anything more for me. The Bible says in verse 19, And the Lord said unto Moses, In Midian, go. So so notice here, Moses has not left. Verse 18 says, He went to Jethro, He says, Can I go? And he says, Go. But Moses doesn't go until God then comes on the scene and says to Moses, Notice the Bible says, In Midian. That means Moses had not left. He had not started leaving 
he tells Moses, go, return into Egypt. And then the Lord says, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. I think what we find here is another insight into the reservation of Moses. Well, why did Moses not go already? Well, I think probably after asking permission of his father-in-law to go, and his father-in-law says go, he's still not there. There seems to be reservation. that I, Then God steps on the scene and says go, just so you know, the people that wanted to seek your life, they're, they're dead. So perhaps this is an insight into what Moses was, uh, what, the trepidation of Moses to go back to Egypt. And so verse 20 says, And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said unto Moses, So now we have the moment where Moses makes the decision to go back to Egypt. And as he makes that decision to return to the land of Egypt, Moses, he takes the rod of God in his hand, and then we read from verse 21 through verse 23, the Lord is going to give further instruction to Moses. There are four distinct and reported commands from God to Moses to go to the land of Egypt. We, if you go back to chapter 3, notice verse 10. Come now, therefore, I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children out of uh, children of Israel, out of Egypt. Again in verse 16, Go, and gather the elders of Israel together, and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God uh, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you, and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. So again he told him to go. Ver chapter 4, verse 12. Now therefore go, I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. And then one more time in chapter 4 verse 19, the Lord said unto Moses and Midian, Go, return into Egypt. And so, and by the way, we find a, a pattern throughout the Bible where God commands and man delays. Uh, we find that, for example, with Abraham. Uh, the timeline with Abraham when he was called to get out of his country and from his kindred, we know that Abraham stayed a while with his father in Haran until his father died. And so there seems to be some delay in the life of Abraham. We know that Abraham did not leave his kindred because he took uh, a lot with him. And so there was delay in the life of Abraham. We, we even know there was delay in the life of Jonah. Uh, Jonah ran from God and God told him, on a number of occasions, go, and Jonah refused to go. So, by the way, let's not be critical of Moses. I think this is just an insight into the flesh and how the flesh often delays. And God has to repeat Himself and say, I, I want you to go. Now, Moses would face uh, two sets of difficulties arriving in Egypt. First of all, the Lord repeats to, from, so from verse 21 through verse 23, the Lord is going to repeat Himself and give some new information to Moses as to when He goes into Egypt. And I think this reflects here in this, me this message from the Lord to Moses, that Moses is going to face two difficulties in going to Egypt. The first one, the Lord tells him in verse 21, When thou goest to return into Egypt, 
see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh. What wonders? Well, remember, God had told him to do the wonders, and God would help him do the wonders. And so God then tells Moses, see that thou do. In other words, he's telling Moses, make sure you do exactly what I tell you to do. So I think here that, again, we have some introspection. Why would God say that if there is not hesitation in Moses in doing this? Make sure you do this, Moses. Make sure you go. Make sure you perform all the wonders that I told you to do. And then the second difficulty that he poses to him is that he would be opposed by Pharaoh. Now, we already know that God has already mentioned that to Moses, but notice the second part of verse 21. See that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. So the Lord presents two things. He says, first of all, make sure you do everything I told you to do with regards to the wonders before Pharaoh. And I want you to know also that Pharaoh is not going to be receptive. He is not going to let the people go. In fact, he, uh, the Lord says, I'm going to harden his heart. I'm interested here in what the Lord says to Moses about Pharaoh. He says, I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. Uh, we read early on, if you go back with me in chapter, just across the page, chapter 3, verse 19. Remember what the Lord said to Moses. He says, and I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. So the Lord had already told Moses uh, that uh, the king is not going to be receptive. Uh, the king is not going to let you go. The Lord says, I am sure. And now he finally tells Moses that uh, he's going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. Uh, now, now often this uh, statement has uh, brought about some confusion, but as we study the Bible, I don't think that this is um, uh, confusing at all. As a matter of fact, if you look in the narrative in the book of Exodus, sometimes it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. At other times, the Bible declares that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And at other times, the scripture simply states that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So, the Lord hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. So we find those used in the book of Exodus repeatedly. So what are we talking about here? Uh, what is God saying when He says, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh? We already know the narrative of the book of Exodus. The narrative of the book of Exodus is that heart, uh, the heart of Pharaoh has already been hardened against the people. In chapter 1 and in chapter 2, we see that uh, Pharaoh devised a plan. He wanted to afflict the people of Israel. He put, the Bible says, hard bondage on them because they became uh, a mighty people. And so he wanted to uh, squelch their power and their ability probably to overthrow the Egyptian government. And so Pharaoh's heart is already hardened, but Moses is going to come on the scene. And when, um, and when Moses is going to say to Pharaoh, let the people go, God says, I'm going to harden his heart. But as we study throughout the Word of God, we know that there's a combination of both 
the man, the, the heart of man being hardened, and also God hardening a man's heart. Now I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans in chapter 1. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Let's look at here an explanation. I think that Romans chapter 1 is a, a fit summary of all of humanity. And where does wickedness in any society arise from? Romans chapter 1 gives us the answer to that. And I, I believe here we find some answers to this idea is how do we reconcile when we read that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened or that Pharaoh himself hardened his heart or that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. How do we reconcile all of that? Who is hardening whose heart? Well, Romans 1, notice with me. Let's begin reading in verse verse 18. The Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Notice verse 21, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. We could say they have hardened their hearts towards God, towards the Creator. Their foolish heart was darkened. Notice verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, notice, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burn in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over unto a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And we read those specific works that come out of that. But do you notice the pattern, verse 24, God also gave them up. Verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them over. But do you notice there's a combination here? As men reject God, as they choose to worship the creature more than the Creator, as the things that are known for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by His uh, uh, power and God has showed that they are without excuse. And so they reject God, though they have a knowledge of God. And when their foolish heart is darkened and their vain imagination abound, God then hardens their heart 
or God gave, gives them up to more of what they want. So we say, well, who hardens whose heart? All of the above. You see, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh hardened his own heart towards the people of Israel, toward God. You remember when Moses would first come to him, or Aaron, he spoke and he said, uh, the Lord says, let my people go. And he says, who is the Lord? And so a rejection of God and a hardening of his own heart toward God. God says, you, do you want to uh, reject me? You want to harden your heart towards me? I'll harden your heart even more. We know that when God gives them up over, their wickedness becomes more intense. As we read in Romans chapter 1, their opposition becomes more intense. We read uh, that they become filled, in verse 29 of Romans 1, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Do you notice the word in verse 29, being filled? What is that? Well, understand, when, when man in our, in our sinful nature, we, we are already carnal, we already have a bent towards sin. But when, we, when men harden their heart toward God, God gave them over to where it reaches the point in their life when they are not, that is not just part of their life, they are filled with those things. You see, the judgment of God is not just a judgment of God where God applies His hand. The judgment of God is also when He takes His hand of restraint away. That is also the judgment of God. And so we know that God would apply His hand on Egypt and Pharaoh would harden his heart and at the same time as God applies his hand in judgment upon Egypt, God would harden the heart of Pharaoh. You want to harden your heart, Pharaoh? I'll give you more of what you want. And what was the result of that? The death of the firstborn in the end. So when you read that, understand here that the hardening of the heart should not be attributed to God alone. It should be attributed to Pharaoh. Because he is the one that, as we saw in the narrative of the book of Exodus, he is the first one to harden his heart toward God and toward the people in Israel. I read uh, from George Rawlinson, he summed it up, he says, Among the natural punishments which God has attached to sin is the hardening of the entire nature of the man who sins. You see, God cannot be blamed for Pharaoh's uh, hardened heart initially. Uh, Keel even says, as the earthly sun produces different effects upon the earth, according to the nature of the soul upon which it shines, so the influence of the divine sun of grace manifests itself in different ways upon the human heart, according to its moral condition. Sun 
melts ice, but it causes clay to harden. Sun causes garbage to rot and to put forth a foul odor, but it makes the flower bloom and gives forth a beautiful fragrance. The sun is not to blame for that which is detestable, neither is God to blame for Pharaoh's hardened heart. This is important. We do not believe that God is the author of evil. He is not. God is holy and He can do no sin. But when man opposes God, God applies His hand and hardens His heart and gives man more of what He wants. So that man can truly find out what it's like to oppose God. So as I mentioned sometimes, and we'll see in the narrative, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes Scripture declares that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And another time, Scripture simply states that Pharaoh hardened, uh, or that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so this would be a, a point for Moses where, I guess you could say it's not the best encouragement for Moses. I want you to go, Moses, to Egypt, and I want you to make sure you do all the wonders before Pharaoh. Make sure you do that. And I want you to know as you do those things, I will harden his heart, and so it's going to become harder and harder. And by the way, we're going to see that very quickly, that Pharaoh is going to make things harder for the people of Israel as a consequence. Where Moses is going to face immediate opposition where the people are going to have greater burdens placed on them and then guess who they're going to come to? Moses and Aaron. It's your fault. You did this. Pharaoh would not have made our burdens, our burdens uh, 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 greater if you had not come in the first place. And so God gives um, uh, Moses some insight into what is going to happen so that he is not distraught when it does happen. You know, the Bible, there are many principles and truths that we find in the Scriptures where God says, look, if you, for example, all they that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. So, you know why God tells us this? Because He does not want us to be surprised when it does happen. And neither should we be surprised when it does happen. Jesus told His disciples when He, he says, uh, Know that the world is going to hate you because they hated Me before they hated you. Now He tells them eventually, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But the point is He doesn't want them to be surprised that opposition is going to come. And here God does the same for Moses. He says, Opposition is going to come, Moses. Don't be surprised by that opposition. But then I want you to see that there's Four points of emphasis that God tells Moses here. Notice in verse 22 and 23. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So, 
In those two verses here, I think that God is emphasizing certain things to Moses because this is new to us. We know that God had already told Moses about the wonders that he would do through him. So he repeated that in verse 21. God had already told Moses that Pharaoh would not be receptive in chapter 3. He tells that again in verse 21. But verse 22 and 23, that's new revelation. And so God basically tells Moses, gives Moses his message. Here's the message, Moses. This is what I want you to say to Pharaoh. Now, in this message, I want you to notice points of emphasis. First of all, there is an emphasis on the source of the message. Do you notice what the Lord says to Moses? And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Ready, Moses? This is what you're going to say. Notice, Israel is my son. Oh, wait, I missed a part, didn't I? What's that part? Thus saith the Lord. Moses, when you go to Pharaoh, I want you to communicate to him very clearly that what you're going to say is not what you want to say, it's what God says. As a matter of fact, the expression here, thus saith the Lord, is repeated hundreds of times in the Scripture. However, this is the first time it happens. The first time in all the Scriptures. You'll read after this, time and time again, when God calls a man to give a word, He says, say this to the people, thus saith the Lord. You don't have your own message. Your message is from God. This is the first time it appears in Scripture. Where God says, when you go to Pharaoh, you're going to stand before Pharaoh, not in your own authority. You're going to stand in the authority of God. And you're going to tell him, just make sure he knows the source of the message is God. It's not Moses. And by the way, today in the gospel, the source of our message is not ourselves, it's God. We didn't come up, we didn't have a board meeting to determine what our message was. Our message is from the Lord. Jesus says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus said, I have authority. And so you go and you, uh, and he just simply tells them, you are witnesses. So testify of that which God has done. So there is an emphasis on the source of the message. So he tells Moses, make sure you you let Pharaoh know that this is what God says. The second point of emphasis here is, There is an emphasis on the sonship of the nation. Do you notice what the message says? It says, Israel is my son. Now this is what God tells Moses to relate to Pharaoh. Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And so here, uh, there is a point of relationship that that God wants Pharaoh to know that God has a relationship with Israel. He is the covenant God of Israel, that the covenants that were given were given to Israel. And so he's reminded of that. There's a relationship here between this people and God. Then the third point of emphasis is that there's an emphasis on the service of the people. Do you notice in verse 23, And I say unto thee, Let my, my son go, that he may what? Serve me. Now I think that is most interesting here because remember we think of Moses going to Egypt to bring the people out of Egyptian bondage. But that's not all that God wants to do for the people. He wants to bring them out of Egyptian bondage that they might serve Him. So understand here that redemption 
is not about freedom alone. It's about service. In other words, the children of Israel will be tempted once they're free. They're saying, we're free. No, you're free to serve God. And salvation is the exact same. I'm free from sin, and we are. But you are free now to serve God. Oh, I know Ephesians 2 for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the next verse does say, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. And so redemption is not just about freedom, it's about service. Service. That's a point of emphasis. So the source of the message, the sonship of the nation, the service of the people. But we also see there's an emphasis on the slaying of the firstborn. Do you notice here what he says at the end? He says, And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Now as we think here about the slaying of the firstborn, we see, we see here this is God announcing his judgment. Now we know now, Moses doesn't know at this time, but we know that's going to be the tenth plague. Moses doesn't know the, 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 the number 10. God has not let Moses know. But the point is that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened, getting harder and harder, until it got to the point where ultimately he would lose his firstborn son. And by the way, to the Egyptians, the firstborn was a god. He was the next in line to be the Pharaoh, and see, he was to be worshipped as a god. And to the Pharaoh, uh, the death of the firstborn would be... Uh, the destruction of a God. And so, I want you to see here that as he, the Lord speaks to Moses, He says several things as He emphasizes the slaying of the firstborn. First of all, He declares that judgment is certain. Do you see what the Lord says to Moses? I will slay thy son. He said, I want you to say that to Pharaoh. You ready? You're going to say that to Pharaoh. Thus saith the Lord, I will slay thy son. Not a comforting message. By the way, to not only receive, but to deliver. You know, when we think about preaching the gospel, it's not a pleasant message to deliver when we talk about sin and hell. It's a very unpleasant message. But the judgment is certain. Those who die without Christ will spend an eternity in hell. The Pharaoh here who refuses to let the son go, God will slay him. It is a confirmation. And by the way, we know that God would do that. Judgment is certain. And by the way, lest we uh, uh, criticize God too harshly as some mean God, let's remember that God gave him ten chances. That God could have just judged him the first time he said no. But no, God is long-suffering and he is patient. Ten plagues it would take. Judgment is certain. By the way, we see that throughout the Bible. During the time of Noah, God would strive with man for 120 years before the flood came. God is gracious and merciful. That's towards the beginning. We even read, by the time we read the book of Revelation, we ask ourselves, well, why does God do things in stages? You have seven seals and seven trumpets and seven vials. Well, all throughout the book of the Revelation, God reminds us, after the judgments fall, they did not repent. Why is God doing things in stages? 
Because he wants men to repent. You see, God would have the right to judge man as soon as man sins, but God is long-suffering. It's not that He overlooks sin, but He allows man an opportunity to repent of his sin, and if man persists in his sin, then there will be judgment. So judgment is certain. We also see that judgment here, and interestingly, is predicated upon Pharaoh's dealing with God's son. Now here, God's son is Israel. Hence what he says. Let my son go. Notice the text again. Thou, Verse 22, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him, my son, go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Isn't it interesting here that judgment is predicated upon Pharaoh's dealing with God's son? Well, I know that also for salvation, that the judgment of God is predicated upon men's response and dealing with God's Son, Jesus Christ. Those who reject, refuse the Son, will spend eternity in hell and will be judged of God. But those who accept the Son receive forgiveness of sin. But we also see that the judgment, for, for, thirdly, is reciprocal. Let my son go, my firstborn. If you don't let my son go, my firstborn son, your firstborn will die. So it's reciprocal. That is what Moses is going to emphasize in his message. The source of the message the sonship of the nation of Israel, the service of the people, and the slaying of the firstborn. That's an important message, is it not? That Moses is going to deliver to Pharaoh, a, no doubt a, a difficult task. And so here we find in this first part here, uh, we find that, that Moses is, is, has been delaying. God has told him repeatedly, go, go. And finally, Moses ends up going. But now we come to another aspect of this narrative, and that is verse 24 through 26. And we not only see the delay of Moses, but we see the disobedience of Moses. Now, I call it the disobedience of Moses because what we find here, verse 24 through 26, let's note it again. And it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it in his feet and said, Surely... A bloody husband art thou to me. Uh, so he let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. I think what we find here in the life of Moses is one of the tokens of the covenant between God and the descendants of Abraham was circumcision. It was a token of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac by faith as a token of the covenant that God made with him. And so here Moses is a descendant of Abraham. We know that, uh, yes, Moses is not with the children of Israel, but evidently here... 
we read this narrative and there seems to be a circumcision issue because Zipporah says to her husband Moses at the, at the end, verse 26, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. So it seems to me that the problem here is that no circumcision. Now, who was not circumcised? Now, if you go back to the practice of, first circum of circumcision when it was instituted, go back with me to Genesis 17, just so that we refresh our memory concerning the importance of the circumcision. Genesis chapter 17. <clears throat> Notice with me, let's begin reading in verse 9. Genesis 17, verse 9, And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. Does that seem like a command? It's a command. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that is born in the, in the house, or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man child, whose flesh of his forkin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. Now that's pretty clear. The soul that is not circumcised shall be cut off. That seems to be pretty important. So as we go back to Exodus chapter 4, if we think about the life of Moses, we know that Moses had two sons. Now up to the narrative in the book of Exodus, we only know of one. If you go back with me to Exodus chapter 2, and notice with me verse 21 and 22. Exodus 2 verse 21 22. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses to Porah his daughter, and she bare him a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. So Moses has a son. Now Moses is not with the children of Israel. He is in the land of Midian. This is not the people of Israel. So he is married to Zipporah and he has one son. So when we reach Exodus chapter 4, we only know of one son. If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. <clears throat> no, so this is later after... The children of Israel have left Egyptian bondage. Notice Exodus 18, verse 1. When Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, and her two sons. So we read she has two sons. Of which the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien in a strange land. And the name of the other was Eliezer. For the God of my father, said he, was mine help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness, where he encamped at the mount of God. And he said unto Moses, 
I, thy father-in-law Jethro, am come unto thee and thy wife and her two sons with her. So as we go back to Exodus chapter 4, we read here of one son being circumcised. The question here is, who is this son? Is it Gershom or Eliezer? Now we all, don't confuse that Eliezer with Aaron has another son, Eliezer. It's spelled a little differently. Which son is it? Well, I think here, let's try to be say the only son we know of in Exodus 4 is Gershom. We don't know of Eliezer. Gershom also is the firstborn. Eliezer is the secondborn. And so up to the narrative here in Exodus, I think that the Lord, if we're addressing here another son, God would have probably told his name because we know nothing about a second son. We only know of one son. And the Bible here only mentions that one son was circumcised, not two. So we're assuming here that Moses probably would not have circumcised one of his sons and not the other. So I think that Eliezer is not on the scene yet. This is just Gershom. The other thing here is, who is this talking about? When we read verse 24 through 26, who is God trying to kill? Is God trying to kill the son, Gershom, or is God trying to kill Moses? Well, I think as we study the text here, the narrative that we read, all of chapter 4, has been between God and Moses, correct? Here, from verse 18 through verse 23, God comes to Moses again after he had spoken to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he told Moses, I want you to go into Egypt, and here is what you're going to do there, and here is the message that you're going to deliver. And then we come to verse 24, and it came to pass, by the way in the end, verse 24, that the Lord met him. There is only one person that the Lord could meet in the narrative of the chapter, and that is Moses. We can't arbitrarily say here, well, this is some other hymn. No, this can only be Moses based on the chapter that we're reading. So the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to kill him. So I don't think that God is trying to kill the son. I think here God's trying to kill Moses. If there's another person in the narrative, God would have named that person or said this is another person apart from Moses, but this is him. And so there is no indication in the scripture in this chapter that could say that this is somebody else that God's trying to kill, but Moses. Now notice, so verse 24, It came to pass, by the way, in the end, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Now, I think this is important for us to think about, because remember I said that the first part of, of this last section of chapter 4 is, the first problem in Moses' is delay, the second part is disobedience. God is trying to kill Moses because obviously Moses did not do what he was supposed to do. And that was circumcise his son according to the covenant between God and the children of Israel. So verse 25, Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So here's again the narrative. If we just look at the text, Zipporah, I believe here, cuts the foreskin off Gershom. Okay, so that's her son. It only mentions a son. And cast it at his feet, whose feet? Moses' feet, and said, how do we know it's cast? Because surely a bloody man thou art to me. So he, she addresses him as she's casting at his feet. So what, what, what is happening here? God went about to kill Moses. And evidently, 
The pattern according to the scriptures was for the father to do the circumcision. So Moses evidently has been in some form incapacitated. Whether he is sick, whether he is paralyzed, we do not know. But the truth is here, it's not Zipporah who's supposed to do that. It's Moses. By the verse 26, the Bible says, So he let him go. Who? I think that's the Lord let Moses go. I think that what happened is that God was about to judge Moses because of his failure to circumcise his son and he was going to kill him. And Zippor ends up circumcising her son, Gershom, and so God then lets him go. Who? Moses. Because Moses would have been the one who would have done the circumcision. But evidently he was not in a position to exercise the circumcision. And then he was let go. Then she said... A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. Now Zipporah is criticized for that, but I think that more importantly is to understand the failure of Moses. Moses should have circumcised his son after eight days. That hasn't been done. And so evidently here Zipporah said, although she may be criticized here for what happened, I think that she stepped in, whether she can be criticized or not, because of the failure of Moses and because of Moses' disobedience. Now, I think this fits within the whole narrative of what we've read here in the last few chapters. Remember, when we think about Moses, Moses, four years prior, he had tried to deliver the people in his own strength. He killed an Egyptian man. He had to flee for his life, and for the last 40 years, he has kind of given up on the idea, even when God calls him to go and deliver the people out of Egyptian bondage, he doesn't want to do it. So it seems to me that Moses has kind of forgotten all about Israel. He doesn't want to be involved in the deliverance. And it seems to us that he's probably forgotten some of the Jewish practice that he ought to have observed. Because the son didn't come from before he got to Midian. He married Zipporah when he got to Midian. So Moses has had a new life. But part of this new life, evidently, why do we have that in the Bible? God lets us know that Moses has not been obedient. Now, why go through all this, Pastor? That's a good question. That's a good question. It is only after the, this, verse 27, And the Lord said unto Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went, and met him in the mount of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. So, the first problem in the life of Moses was delay. Delay in obeying the Lord. So God, in His graciousness and His mercifulness, allows Moses time and finally tells him to go. But as He tells Moses to go, there is, a, there is a point, and we don't know exactly the timeline, but the point is, before Moses went sometime or on his way, there was a point that he had to address in his life, and that was what? He had been disobedient to the Lord. And so God made sure, I am not going to, to use you, Moses. As a matter of fact, I will take you out if you're not going to obey me. You see, God is interested in obedience. So sometimes we may think in our lives, well, I, I want to obey the Lord in this area. 
But often what God wants us to do, He wants to examine, what well, are there areas in our lives right now where we have been disobedient? Because I think sometimes we just want to move on to the next thing. And we want to go and say, well, I want the next assignment. I want to do something else. And often we have not been obedient in these areas that are known in our lives where there is persistent disobedience. And the truth is, I believe that in many cases, God is not going to allow us to move on until those things have been taken care of in our lives. And so here, this has been taken care of. And so, I believe here that we find two enemies of God's will in the life of Moses. Delay and disobedience. And those are still two enemies of God's will in our lives. Remember, I've I've made this statement before. That we will not know God's will for our lives until we do God's will in our lives. Well, I want to know where God wants... where, where Where do you want me to go? What ministry do you want me to do? Well, often when we think about God's will... And by the way, there is no scripture for those things. But there are other scriptures that are known. And so when we do God's will in the areas where we know we sh- what we should do, then God will give directions in those areas where we do not know what to do. But if we are disobedient in that which we know, why would God reveal that which we do not know? And so here, Moses has to take care of those things. Now the result of this, we just read it, verse 27-28, Aaron meets Moses, Moses meets Aaron, Uh, Moses relays to Aaron all that God has told him. Verse 29, And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. Isn't that what God had told Moses? They will believe. And when they heard, now this is amazing part here. When they heard, who? The the children of Israel. When they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel. And that He had looked upon their affliction. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Isn't that a wonderful way to end the chapter? Moses arguing with God at the beginning of the chapter. Moses delays. Moses has been disobedient, at least in one area that we know of here, that is an important area to the Lord. And yet, after all those things are taken care of, after God takes care of Moses' doubt, after God has been patient towards Moses and continues to press him, go Moses, go Moses, here is the message and here is the assignment. And then when God helps Moses to take care of his area of disobedience now Moses is able to do what God wants him to do and the the end of this narrative is that you have Moses and Aaron in Egypt and the people worshiping God the Bible says they bowed their heads and they worshiped what caused I'm interested in what caused their worship you know we, we talked about worship a little bit this morning We are to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. What causes worship? Why do we not worship? What brought about their worship? I think that we we know here that the children of Israel have not been worshiping the Lord. 
We know that there are some pagan gods involved. The book of Ezekiel mentions that when they came out of Egypt, there was false gods and God had told them to put those strange gods away from them and, and they would not. The golden calf is the product of that later. But the point here is they worship the Lord. What brings about worship to God? Well, there's two things I think that you find in that very verse. Notice, first of all, the Bible says, and the people believed. What brings about true worship? Faith. Faith. They believed in that probably which they have forgotten about. Or they believed in that which they thought would be impossible. Or they believed in that which they thought would never come. What was that? Deliverance, redemption out of Egyptian bondage. And they believed in that. And so understand, faith prompted their worship. And I believe it still does today. Faith in the Lord, when we believe in the Lord... It causes us to worship. Why? Because we believe what He says. We believe what He is going to do. If we don't believe, how can we worship? If we are struggling with saying, well, God, you're go I know you're going to do this. Or if there's a struggle in our lives and says, well, I just don't see how God can uh, help me. I, I just don't see how this is going to work out in my life. I just don't see how God can intervene. Well, if that's our position, we will not find ourselves worshiping the Lord. They believed. They worship, but there's a second thing I think that prompted their worship. Not only was faith, but secondly, I think it was gratitude. Do you notice the verse? And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that He had looked upon their afflictions, their affliction, then they bowed their heads. I think their worship was not only prompted by their faith, they believe, but also by gratitude. God has seen us. God has heard their cry. We've seen that throughout the book of Exodus. When God came to Moses, He says, I have seen the affliction. I have heard their cry, and I am come to deliver them. And so when they heard that, when they heard that God was a God who loved them and cared for them, out of gratitude, what, what can you do but to worship Him? The God that you thought was so distant. The one that you cried out to for so many years that they would be delivered from Egyptian bondage. Now you realize He has been there all along and He has heard everything all along the way. And now that they realize that God has been there all along, they just bow down and they worship. You see, I believe those two things will prompt our worshiping the Lord. Faith and gratitude. Remember what we find in, I read this morning in the book of Revelation. They remember the fact that the Lord had saved them and washed them and they worshipped. And they said, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise. For Thou hast redeemed us out of every kindred and people and tongue and nation. And then they bowed and they worshipped the Lord. That's gratitude. Gratitude. So may the Lord help us as we think about this chapter. A good way certainly to end. After all, I think you can see all the ups and downs in this chapter. And now we finally get to the place where Moses is able to do what God has called him to do. Could I encourage you this evening 
There are two enemies of God's will in our lives. The first one is delay. The second one is disobedience. And lest we be too critical of Moses, I think we all know that that is true in all of our lives, isn't it? We delay to obey the Lord. And sometimes there's areas of disobedience that we simply need to to get right in our lives so that we can take the next step. And that was so in the life of Moses. Can God do anything? Can God use a disobedient Moses? Yes, He can. But He does not want to. He does not want to.